0: part of a church that slows down over the summer. There's so many churches that just kind of wind things down and coast through the summer, but you said not here. So many things ahead of us, so many things to do, Lord, and we're grateful for those because we know that you are at work. We want to see the gospel poured out into these kids' lives coming up this week. Uh, We're just so excited for what you're doing. Uh, Men's discipleship, whatever it is, we want to follow your lead, God, Because you're at work here. And we pray for our Pastor Scott that you would uh, bring him quick healing, Lord. And we thank you for him. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you turn your Bibles to Malachi chapter 1, it shouldn't be too difficult. It's the last book of the Old Testament. Of course, when I was asked to preach, this passage immediately came to mind. And of course, it doesn't hurt that I've been going through Malachi with my Bible fellowship group. So welcome, you are now part of Pastor Brian's Bible Fellowship group this morning. Malachi chapter 1. We're going to start with verse 1. This is an incredible passage. Let me ask you, have you ever struggled with the love of God? Have you went through something or in the middle of something? And you've been through it for a while. And the question tends to come up. Where is God? Does God love me? I think it's a common thing to believers that as God brings us through difficult situations, which he promises, and we'll look at that in a little bit, that the enemy likes to put those little seeds of doubt in our mind and we just take the football and run with it. Is God here? Does he love me? That's an important thing because the context of the book of Malachi, uh, helps us to understand uh, that this truth, this lens that God wants us to see it through. Now, just some context here, give you a quick drive-by of the book of Malachi. Malachi means my messenger. I love when God does that. He raises people up with such an apt name to give a message of God. Now, this book is difficult. It has some very heavy admonitions within it. Which is why I think this text is very, very important. But the context is that Israel was clicking along just fine under King David. His son takes over Solomon, pleads God for wisdom. God gives it to him in spades, but then later in his life, he abandons that wisdom for worldly wisdom. Starts marrying wives that he shouldn't have married because of political reasons and whatnot, And idolatry began to slowly creep into Israel's borders. And they couldn't get to the other nine commandments because they were breaking the first one. No other gods before them. Solomon's son took over. The nation splits. To the north, you retain the name Israel. Never followed after God. Always idolatrous in everything that they did. The southern area was called Judah. And they followed God for a while. But then, time after, you know, after a little bit of time, they fall into idolatry. And God kept sending prophet after prophet after prophet warning them calling them to repentance and in fact they didn't repent though the southern kingdom of judah repented a little bit and kind of staved off the idolatry they finally went headlong into it and god said the prophet jeremiah to speak to them and tell them about captivity nebuchadnezzar the babylonian king which would be present-day iraq comes through like a firestorm all over the ancient world he just decimates Jerusalem and the temple and brings Israel into captivity. They were not even allowed to take Jewish names or speak Hebrew anymore. It was an, an attempt at obliterating their culture completely. Well, as it turns out in God's providence, Persia takes over Babylon. And the king of Persia didn't like this slavery thing. And so he was, began sending people back to their homeland. And he sent Israel back to the homeland with the instructions to rebuild the temple. And they do rebuild it after some starts and stops and some apathy, prophet after prophet. But they rebuild the temple. But about two decades later, we have the book of Malachi. And in it, we see a priesthood and sacrifices, which means a fully functional temple. But it's the last prophetic message that God would give to Israel before the coming of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. 400 years where God did not speak through A prophet and the theme of the book really could be summarized as God takes things seriously he takes his love seriously he takes worship seriously he takes the role of the priest and by extension the pastor very seriously he takes biblical marriage seriously he takes giving seriously he takes the coming work of the Messiah very seriously all of these things are in the book of Malachi in fact verse 1 it says the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel Malachi a word oracle can yes be translated in utterance or or some kind of speaking forth but it also can be translated as the burden and it was a heavy burden that God was calling Malachi this message was burdensome to deliver because it's hard there's some very very difficult things in the book of Malachi but before we get to this God wanted to remind the nation that ultimately this was an oracle of his love for them. It's important to see it through that lens because as God is giving them difficult things, he's reminding them, look at this through the lens of my love for you. He doesn't start the book out with, I'm going to beat you over the head with this. You've been breaking the law, which they had been doing. But God chose not to do it in that manner. He decided to go into his love. So the first real main point today is that God declares his steadfast and eternal love for his chosen. So let's look at verse two. I have loved you, says the Lord. Just stop right there. I have loved you. And here God is softening what could be a very hard tone of this message. It shows that God will love and forgive. Don't you love this? A lot of people misinterpret the Old Testament as God being an angry or a vengeful God, but nothing could be further from the truth. Time and time again, when Israel would slip off into sin, God would remind them through sending prophet, after prophet, decades, even at one point, about a hundred years or so in time before God really got involved. And he sends these prophets for a reason. He wants them to repent. He's giving them the opportunity to repent. Why? Because he loves them. That should give us great hope and encouragement. Now when we're wrestling with sin and the Holy Spirit brings us under conviction of something, one thing that we can be tempted to do is be afraid. Don't be afraid. God loves us through Jesus Christ, through the gospel that he's given to us. And he's giving us these warnings. He gave Israel these warnings because he loves them. Because he wants them to repent. That should give us great encouragement. And you have that statement. And and you're going to see this all throughout the book of Malachi if you read this on your own. Just a little statement and a response. And a statement and a response. It's how the book is actually uh, structured. And he says, I have loved you. He's giving them an affirmation of affection for the nation despite their sinfulness. But that statement really highlights their ingratitude because look at the response right following after that. But you say, how have you loved us? Now, I don't want us to be confused as to the tone that they're bringing. It's not a lovey-dovey kind of thing where a couple's together and one says, oh, do you know how much I love you? No, tell me how much you love me. Now, I'm going to give you the the new Brian paraphrase of this, if I may, without being disrespectful. God says, I have loved you. Yeah, how? You've loved us? How have you loved us? Now, do you see that in the tone? That's the immediate response. The prophet comes on the scene. The prophet says, Israel, this is the oracle of the Lord. God says... I have loved you. And instead of rejoicing and praising God and being driven to their knees in worship, they turn around with this arrogant tone of voice and said, "How? How have you loved us?" Now, I want us to be careful though because we can read things like this and cast a very judgmental eye on poor Israel. And I've been accused of that. Well, I've caught myself doing those kinds of things before. Right? You read the Old Testament and you read how Israel falls and they, and they repent. And then they fall and they repent. And we think, how in the world, Israel, can you keep doing this? I mean, did you see what God did when they brought you out of Egypt? And yet, not even a month later in the wilderness, they're, they're cursing God practically. They're disobeying the Lord. And yet God calls them to repentance. They repent and they move forward. God settles them into the new land, a land flowing of milk and honey. He settles them, gives them peace from their enemies over time, makes them a nation, and yet they fall away and they fall in idolatry. And our temptation is, how, Israel, can you keep doing this? Can't you see what God has done for you? Again, I think we should take that little judgmental finger and turn it back on ourselves. How many times do we do the same thing? How many times do we fall away from the Lord when we could say the very same thing that we condemn Israel for? You've seen God you've seen his glory in the face of Jesus Christ you have seen him pull you out of darkness and into the marvelous light you've seen that God has taken you from whatever circumstance that you were in in rebellion against God because let's face it we weren't looking for God he came looking for us and he found us he opened up our hearts to receive the message of the gospel how miraculous is that he shows us who he is, this holy God. And then he shows us Christ and gives us the faith to believe it in faith. And yet we turn and we turn. So we, we, we need to show Liz, Israel a little bit of compassion in this because they were going through some difficulties. Life was not quite what they had hoped it would be at this point. Have you ever said that about yourself? Life's not quite what I thought it would be at this stage of my life. You know, when you're young and you, know, you don't believe you're ever going to die and you have these great big plans and ambitions and stuff, then you hit about middle age and you're like, yeah, reality's hit me pretty hard. Life isn't quite like how I thought it would be. Israel was facing the same kind of mentality. So they were brought back from captivity. They had promises from the prophets that God would do that, would establish them as a nation. And so it took them quite some time. They were facing enemies all around them as they were trying to rebuild themselves into a nation. There was one point where they had to have a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other to fend off the attacks from their political enemies. There were people lying about them to the king of Persia saying they're gonna subvert your throne. They wanna break away from, they're just lies. And in order to try to get them to stop doing what they were trying to, to do. And finally, they got things going. They had this spiritual apathy going on. You can read that in the book of Haggai and a few others, and Zephaniah or Zechariah. God wakes them out of their complacency. The temple is built, and about two decades later, they're sitting, looking around, going, we're not anywhere close to the where we thought we would be at this point. Yeah, we're a nation, but we're still a client nation for the Persian Empire. Yeah, we're a nation, but we're not prosperous like it was under King David and Solomon. The money wasn't rolling in like we thought it would be. Sure, we have our temple, but it's a lot smaller than it used to be. When we built this thing, the young men who never saw the original temple before shouted with joy, we have a temple. The old men who remembered seeing it in its former glory cried, Because it was so small and insignificant compared to the other one. And yet this is what they had. And they're going through this way of thinking here. Life isn't quite what they had hoped. And then they started doubting God's love for them. Where's God? Why hasn't God done something more for us? Why hasn't God done fill in the blank? And then our response often is when we face difficult situations. Oftentimes, our first reaction is to question either whether God is there or whether God actually loves us. And we walk into our sinful thinking with that way of thinking. You know, God never promised an easy life. In fact, quite the contrary. Jesus said, In this life, you will have trouble. I love how Jesus says this. He said, in this life, in this world, you will have trouble. Take heart. I've overcome the world. It's like, cheer up. It's going to be all right. I've got this. We're promised difficulty. As if the world, living in a sinful world, wouldn't be difficult enough, God is still ironing out our sinfulness, making us more like Jesus Christ on top of it. So you have those two put together, and we've got some difficult circumstances ahead of us. God says that that being refined... To be like Christ is like the process of metal being refined where it gets put into a crucible. This crucible heats this metal up until it starts bubbling and they pull it out and they put it back in and then they pull it out and they're scooping out impurities as they bring it in and bring it out. That's not fun. God puts us in that crucible of life to make us like Christ. But we sometimes forget that he's making us like Christ Through these difficulties, we look at the difficulty and it eclipses our view of the greatness and the glory of God. And then after some time, we tend to think, where is God? I remember years ago, many years ago, I was laid off from a job. And that's tough enough, right? Being laid off from your job. And I remember thinking, oh, we're going to get through this. So I'm going to trust in the Lord. And days turn into weeks. Weeks turned into a couple of months. The bills started really piling up. Savings started draining. And after some time, I thought, God, where are you? I know you show up just in time. You know, those cliches we like to use. Just in time happened about a month ago. I'm still waiting. And After a while, God was calling me to trust in him. See, I thought that in my magnificence, I was going to trust in the Lord And yet God was showing me how magnificently I didn't trust the Lord. And through that process, he's hammering out the kinks, making me to be like Christ. But during that time, I question, is God here? I even remember saying one time in a prayer, God, have you taken a walk? That was disrespectful, but it showed you where my heart was. Does God love my family? Does God love me? God, don't you know that you've raised me up to be the provider of my family? And I gave God this laundry list of why He should act and why He wasn't acting. How about our sin? May we wrestle with sin and we fall, and the Spirit convicts us through the Word of God, and we think, Does God love me? Am I saved? Have you ever asked that question when you've fallen into sin? Am I even truly saved? That's a good question to occasionally ask. But if we take that and run with it too far, we begin to question whether God's love is even present for us at all. That's why we must think of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must go back. God declares to them, I have loved you. Well, through the gospel, God declares to us, I have loved you. We have to rehearse it to ourselves. We have to get it into our minds daily. And when we're walking through difficult circumstances and we're starting to slip into that where's God mentality, I encourage you, put the gospel in note cards and tape them up all around your house, on your mirror, in your bathroom, wherever you look, so you can remind yourself of what the love of God truly is. Fortunately, we tend to equate the love of God with circumstances, material blessings. This is why the trap of charismatic theology is so dangerous because it ties the love and faithfulness of God into material things. But God never promises that. He calls us to look upon himself, upon his son, and to pursue Christ above all things. We need to trust in him. But see, God doesn't just stop there, right? He, He says, I have loved you. And they turn around and say, how have you loved me? Well, God at this moment then demonstrates his love for his chosen. Now, we're going to look at this, but I want you to see. If I were God, and thank God I'm not, I'd say, my children, I love you. And they turn around and look at me and say, how have you loved me? What do you mean, how have I loved you? Are you crazy? You ingrateful people. But God doesn't do this. He responds. Look at verse two, the second part of verse two. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob. But I have hated Esau and made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, We have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins, thus says the Lord of hosts, they may rebuild, but I will tear down, and men will call them the wicked territory, and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Did you notice the lack of a rebuke? How dare you question my love for you? Don't you know what I've done for you? He would have been within his rights to say that. But he didn't do that. He answers. And he answers without a rebuke. Shouldn't that comfort us? God's not afraid of the big questions that we ask of him. He already knows what's in our heart. He already knows what's in our minds. Might as well turn it to him, give it over to him so he can do something with it and minister peace to our hearts. This is ultimately what we should be doing is turning these thoughts over to God and not be afraid of him. Sometimes when we sin or we fall or we're questioning God's presence or his love, we don't turn that back and say, God, I'm really struggling right now with your love for me. Remind me from your word of your love and then pick this up and read it. Oftentimes we doubt or question the love of God in our lives because we're not reading this. We're too busy looking at the mountain that's in our way. And we focus on the mountain. The longer we stare at this mountain, the bigger it becomes in our eyes. And the smaller this becomes and worse insignificant. When we fall away into sinfulness. That's the first thing usually that goes is the reading of the word of God And then when we're encouraged to go back to the word of God, we're too busy looking at that big mountain, and this seems like, well, that's not going to help. Or I just don't feel like it today. I feel like staring at this big mountain that's in my way and then complaining. No, God comes with the word. He says that he loves us. And then he gives the people in Malachi's day the answer. And the first answer is he draws their attention to his sovereign choice to make them his people. You see that in the passage? He said, wasn't Esau Jacob's brother, and yet I have loved Jacob. Esau I have hated. Now, we're going to get into the Esau Jacob thing, but I know the first thing that usually comes up when we read a passage like this is the whole love-hate kind of thing. Did God truly hate Jacob? Well, unfortunately, the English language pretty much has only one definition for the word hate, and it's I want to wipe you off the face of the earth. And We tend to think that about people we dislike. I hate you. Hebrew has, very, has nuances to their words. And one word can mean multiple things. And I think the best context here is reject. Because what God is doing is reminding Israel of his sovereign choice in Jacob. And then in contrast to that sovereign choice, and we'll look at that in just a second, in contrast to that sovereign choice, he is now looking at rejecting Esau. Now, Jesus did something very similar in Luke chapter 14 and verse 26. You don't have to turn there. But he's talking about following after Jesus Christ. You can't follow it until you, unless you hate your mother, hate your father, hate your sisters, hate your brothers. So is Jesus advocating hatred in our hearts? Far be, he tells us to love our enemies, right? So what is he talking about? He's talking about rejecting their, their ways. I remember they, remember they were Jewish people that he was speaking to at the time. And to follow after Jesus Christ then a rejection of everything that was, that was taught, that was unbiblical. It was following after the Messiah, believing that he was the Messiah, believing in the words that he was trying to uh, un- straighten out what had been twisted up in God's word, and it was going to cause serious family problems. Children that get saved in their families would have parents that would want them to have nothing to do with that whatsoever. Reminded of a testimony I've heard not too Uh, Not too far in the past of a a young woman who grew up in a very Jewish family. And following after Christ cost her a lot and her family. She never hated her parents. But she had to reject their way of thinking when it came to Jesus whether he was Messiah or not. This is what Jesus is talking about. And I believe this is the best context that is provided for us in the book of Malachi. He's saying, I chose Jacob. I have rejected Esau. Now, let's look at, see if that bears out in the scriptures. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25. We're going to look at 21, uh, 21. Verse 21. Because when Malachi would start talking about Jacob and Esau, they immediately would have known what he was talking about. Us, we need to kind of back up a little bit and look at some of this context. So we know that Abraham, God called Abraham. He was in Ur of the Chaldees doing whatever it is that Abraham did. And God showed up one day and said, Abraham, or Abram, I'm God. You're going to follow me. I'm going to lead you to a land and I'll show you where it is. Just keep following and let you know when you get there. And it's from you... All the families of the earth would be blessed out of your line. He had a son. His name was Isaac. And this is where we pick up now in Genesis 25 and beginning with verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So she has twins. As a man, can't even imagine having one. She's got two in there. Now remember that this is a society where you were encouraged and and, and considered blessed when you had multiple children. But there was something funny going on in there because it took her attention and made her nervous. And I'm quite sure she asked people around, do we know what's happening in here? This is beyond kicking me. This is beyond kicking the ribs. This is beyond hitting me uh, and, and causing me to stay awake all night long. There's something odd going on in here. And probably no one could help her with this. So she turned her attention to the Lord and said, God, what is going on in here? This is beyond just normal kicking around. I know space is limited. There's two in there, but still. Something is happening in here. And God said, I'm doing something. There's two nations inside of your womb. And the younger would be the one who is served. The older would serve the younger. Very radical statement. Very radical. Because the way it worked in society... Esau, which would have been the firstborn, would have been the one to pick up his father's mantle. He would take up the family business, he would get the inheritance, and his job would to be stepping in the shoes of his father when his father passed away to ensure that his family was cared for. It was his by birthright. But yet God said, nah, we're doing something a little different here. I'm making a choice. I am choosing Jacob. So what was he choosing? What was this choice? What did it involve? Go back to Genesis 3. God told the woman, the seed, your seed is coming who will crush the serpent's head. You fast forward to Abraham. He gave a promise to Abraham and among other promises, he said, through you, all the families of the earth would be blessed. What was he talking about? Who was he talking about? Jesus Christ that the Messiah would come through the line of Abraham. But now we have two in the womb. Only one, Messiah can only come from one. God chooses Jacob. And from Jacob comes Israel. Literally, Jacob, yeah, Israel. Um, And he would be the one that would have, he would have 12 kids and they become the 12 tribes of Israel. You have the nation of Israel from whom Messiah would come. God called Jacob to be that one. He rejected Esau. Now, does it mean that from the womb, God said, I hate that unborn thing. I just despise him. He didn't choose him. He chose Jacob. Now, to be fair, Esau was a God-hater his whole life. One of the things that he did was married a foreign wife just despite his parents. Scripture said it. He rejected everything Isaac tried to teach him about God. I need to try to teach his kids about God. And to be fair, so did Jacob, but God got a hold of Jacob's heart. And unless something happened in Esau's life that's not recorded for us in the scriptures, so likely not, right now Jacob, Jake, or Esau is experiencing the judgment and the wrath of God on him. But in the context of Malachi, he's saying, I am demonstrating my love for you. I showed you this because I picked your forebearer Jacob and from him you are now my people you want to know how much I love you look to my sovereign choice in you that's what we should do we struggle with the love of God we need to look to God's choice in us see this is what Paul takes up in Romans chapter 9 so if you turn over there to Romans chapter 9 I start with verse 6 Romans 9 and verse 6 because Paul takes this up This whole issue of Jacob and Esau applies it to the New Testament Christian. He even quotes one of the things that uh, is said in Malachi. So Romans chapter 9, beginning with verse 6. And while you're turning there, at this point, Paul is struggling a little bit because he's noticed a trend. As long as the gospel, the farther the gospel keeps expanding around, he's seeing less Jewish people getting saved. And more Gentile people exponentially coming to Jesus Christ. And he's getting concerned that Israel is rejecting the true Messiah. And he's come to the conclusion, and you can read this through, uh, through eleven, through chapter eleven, that this is the time of the Gentiles and Israel is just not coming in. So look at verse six of chapter nine. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. Amen. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children because they're Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are are regarded as descendants. So Paul is saying let's keep things in the grand scope of theology here. God's chosen Israel, and from that, not everyone who believes, who, not everyone who is of the genetic ancestry of Israel is actually the true Israel that God is talking about here. Verse, uh, verse 9, for this, for this is the word of the promise. At this time, I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older would serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I hated. So Paul is hearkening back to the whole concept of God's sovereign choice, He appeals to people who are listening to this. You remember the situation between Jacob and Esau. By birthright, it should have been Esau. But God said, no, it's going to be Jacob. So for us that are here in Christ Jesus, we can see the demonstration of God's love because he chose you. He chose you. Before you could have done anything. That's what happened there. He said before anyone could do anything. Before the kids were born. He said they have not, bo- not done anything good or bad, but it was according to his purpose and choice. Now you might be thinking, well, how do I know if I've been chosen? That's a good question. I guess I would turn that around to another question and I would ask you, do you care? Do you want to be the chosen? Those of whom God has chosen? Is it something you want? Does it bother you? If you think, maybe I'm not, do you wrestle with that? If you answered yes, then it's likely that you are because you wouldn't care any other way. At one point in Esau's life did he say, Well, God didn't pick me, and so I'm really mad, and I'm I'm praying to God, please change your mind. Not once. He rejected God his entire life. He probably viewed God very much like... Oh, that's just like one of the Baals out there... Or an It's Just one of those regional gods... It just has to be my family's God... And I don't want anything to do with him. You wouldn't care. Paul says that none are seeking after God. The only reason why you've come to Christ... Is because God hunted you down. Sought you. And did with you like he did with Lydia... When Paul was preaching the gospel... Opened up her heart to understand truly what Paul was saying. We came to Christ because God sought us, opened up our hearts, gave us a glimpse of His holiness. We see our unholiness, but He presents Christ to us, gives us the gift of faith so that we may believe. That's what God has done for us. If that's not you and you don't consider yourself a follower of Christ, let me urge you call upon Him while He is near. Today is the day of salvation. If you are concerned, if you're struggling with this, call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Ask him to forgive you and repent of your sin. But this brings us back to the original point. In Malachi's day, the people were struggling. How does God love us? And he takes them back all the way to their progenitor, Jacob. I chose him, and from them him came you. I knew you. I chose this nation. I made you a people. Now you don't have to turn there, but for sake of time, but Peter takes this cause up, First Peter chapter one. "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of jesus christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiable and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of god through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time now all of them should have been rejoicing and shouting there might have been some people still struggling so he continues that thought in chapter 2. And coming to him as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. He says, the world, God rejected the world's way of trying to approach him. But he put his choice in his son, Jesus Christ. And you came to him. So you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For you're once not a people, but now you are the people of God. Sound familiar? These are terms that, the Bible would use for Israel, he's applying it to people who have been chosen by God and brought to Christ by faith and were called to declare God's excellencies. That's what Israel was supposed to do, declare God's excellency. Now, why? Why does Peter bring that up so passionately in the first two chapters of his letter? Because the people were struggling. You can read that for yourself in chapter 1, very, very beginning. People were part of the diaspora, they call it, the dispersion. People were coming to Christ, and it was illegal to be a Christian. And the people of their homes, the townsmen and women, said, I don't care where you live, but you can't live here. You want to be a follower of Christ? Get out. They confiscated their homes, and they sent them packing with very little. They had no homes, no countrymen. Their families were rejecting them, and they were kind of dispersing all over the place because they had nowhere to go. How do you think that felt? Not too good. And they probably stopped and thought, where's God? Why is this happening? Does God still love me? And Peter comes up, remember God chose you. That's how he shows that he loves you. What more love can God demonstrate for us that he called you out of darkness, reserved for nothing but his judgment and brought you to the kingdom of his light where we can now enjoy him forever. Those catechisms, the first one is to, uh, you know, what's the chief end of man? To enjoy him forever. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. And we get to enjoy God. This momentary pain that we're going through in this life is a drop in the bucket compared to an eternity with Jesus Christ who loves us and gave himself for us. This is what he did for Israel. He's like, how have I loved you? Okay, let's go back to the beginning. Let's talk about Jacob. Let's talk about me choosing him. If I didn't choose him, you wouldn't be here to this day. Now when we struggle with the love of God, let's go back to the beginning. Did I choose God? He chose me. He hunted me down because he decided to set his affection upon us and save us in Jesus Christ. This is why we have to think of Christ. We have to think of the gospel through these things. It's the clear evidence that he loves us. So Malachi, he reminds them that their continued existence as the people of God is proof that he loves them. Man, if there was ever a culture obliterating event, it would be hauled off into captivity by King Nebuchadnezzar. Not allowed to take Jewish names anymore. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, those aren't Jewish names. Those are Babylonian names. You're not allowed to speak Hebrew. Old dreidels were invented during the time to try to clandestinely teach them something about Hebrew. And about, the, about, their, about Judaism, about, their, about the Lord, and about Scripture. If there was any a time when their culture could have been obliterated, it was then. And yet God still preserved them. Why? Because God made a promise. He made a promise to Eve. He made a promise to Abraham. He made a promise to Jacob. And he makes the promise to them. I love you. I made a choice. And I made a promise. And to us, are we continuing in the steadfastness of our faith? How many have fallen? Don't raise your hand. How many have fallen into sin this week? Think that through. And yet here you are today. How many times over the course of our Christian life have we fallen into sin and the Lord rebukes us for that, convicts us through the word, calls us to repentance? I see that a lot in my life. We're to live daily repentant before God. That's proof that the Lord loves you. That he made a choice in you and he promised with the Savior that that none would be lost, that he would give the Savior. And if you're saved, he gave you to Christ. None will be lost. That includes you. As Andrew mentioned earlier, I did bring up Romans chapter 8. We have an entire chapter dedicated to the love of God and Jesus Christ. And Paul goes through this entire list Of all the things that could potentially, in our minds, threaten the love of God for us. Life, death, angels, demons. And he goes through this whole list. And he just says, anything in heaven, anything in earth, anything under the earth. I put myself in that category as well. Nothing, nothing separates us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, if you're here by faith in him. Not even my own sin. God will be sure call me to repent he will rebuke me pastor Scott is very right when in discipleship training program and other uh, youth camps and whatnot he draws that line of progressive sanctification or progressively being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ we get saved we're kind of down here and Christ is all the way up there and we're on that trajectory of being like Christ there are little dips along the way where we're still wrestling With the sin nature. Sin has no power over But the nature of it has changed. Has no power over us. We give it the power. We slip into sin. But he calls his own back to repentance. Every single time. This is what he does in Malachi. He reminds them of his faithfulness. Of his sovereign choice. But he does more than that. He demonstrates his love. Through protection and care. Again, if there was ever a culture obliterating event, it was the captivity into Babylon. Would have been the captivity into Egypt. Think of all the times that Israel in the Bible could have been wiped from the face of the earth. They go into Egypt, they become slaves. That could have been the end of their culture. God said, no, I made a promise. I made a choice. I chose Abraham, I chose Isaac, I chose Jacob, and you're a part of that. He brings them out of that. There are times that they were overrun by their enemies, the Philistines and others, in their own homeland. And yet God preserves them. He he brings them into captivity, the northern kingdom into Assyria, and then all of them eventually into Babylon, and then eventually Persia when it changes hands. And yet he sends them back and reconstitutes them as the people. Christ had to come through them. There was nothing that was going to happen to them that that God would not allow because Jesus was going to come from the nation of Israel. But he shows them that their continued existence as a people is proof that God loved them. And he contrasts that with this nation called Edom. That's back in, uh, back in Malachi chapter 2. He says, Edom. You're like, where's this Edom coming from? Well, the children of Esau were called the Edomites. And they were a nation too. Remember, God promised that to Rebekah. He said, there's two nations in your womb. And one of them, of Esau, the one that was not chosen, became the Edomites. And they lived to the south and a little bit to the east of Israel and were a constant problem for the nation. When God was bringing Israel out of the exodus, they were coming through the wilderness, and Edomites were they crossed their arms and said, not through our land, you're not. Walk all the way around the backside of the desert to get there. That's all in God's plan, though. And then while Israel was a nation... Edom would occasionally do these little guerrilla attacks up north to their, to their cousins up north. Constant fight. They were treacherous when it came to Nebuchadnezzar. They were there, and Nebuchadnezzar was doing his thing, rotting across the, uh, the Near East. And the Edomites, probably out of a hope of self-interest, they said, Hey, Nebuchadnezzar, they're fleeing. You're attacking Jerusalem. They're headed to Egypt. I'll stop them at the border for you. You can capture them there. And sure enough, they did. And Edom became a client state. And again and again, you can see, read in Obadiah, the prophet Obadiah, he was prophesying Edom's fall, that they were treacherous. They never followed after the Lord as a nation. Now, that doesn't mean there weren't some Edomites that did things right, that, that followed after the Lord. But as a nation, as a whole, God promised to bring them to ruin because they were wicked. They never after that whole babylonian and persian incident never became a power worth mentioning in the desert ever again they even were displaced they had to move a little bit to the west and they became part of this area called the Edomians. and one of the famous edomites is king herod herod the great what is king herod famous for trying to kill the babies trying to kill jesus This has been a constant issue, and he reminds them look what I've done to Edom in the past. I have made his land a wasteland. They will say, I will rebuild, I'll tear it down. Do you see the the way they talk about it in this passage? He says, uh, though Edom says, We have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. I don't care what God is doing, we're going to rebuild. Sounds almost like what they said at the Tower of Babel. Instead of being scattered across the face of the earth, we're going to build this tower and make a name for ourselves. How'd that work out for them? Not real well. God scattered them. But God is scattering Edom because not only was he not, he was not chosen to bear the line that Jesus would come from, but they just went full headlong in their sinfulness and became a wicked, wicked country. And God is telling Israel here, the proof of my love for you is how I've protected you and how I've preserved you. Look at how I deal with the wicked. They're not so blessed as you are. They will fall. I've done it before. I will do it again. Now for us, proof that God's love for you are those little victories that you get each and every day. And I don't mean victory over physical enemies. We shouldn't have enemies per se. We should love our enemies if we have them. We should do good to them. Those who despitefully use us. Jesus said that in the Sermon on the Mount. But what about the enemy of our own sinfulness? You see victory in that? Has God helped you to overcome certain things that used to beset you? Sins that would beset you? Taught you how to be a better follower and worshiper of Jesus Christ? There's proof that he loves you. He didn't leave you all alone. Now to be sure, all the enemies of God will be defeated. In fact, whatever we see as far as God defeating enemies is a preview of what's yet to come still. See, with Edom, he said, I've torn them down, and if they try to rebuild I'm going to tear them back down again. For us, what's the greatest event of the enemies of God that will be destroyed? The return of Jesus Christ. To be sure, Christ will come. It says he will make all of the enemies of God as a footstool for his feet. He will defeat them and destroy them. Namely, sin will be defeated permanently and totally. And we will get to see that. So when we experience these little victories along the way, that should remind us of God's love. He's preserved us. He's not preserved our enemies. He's like, show the contrast here. And then finally, God draws praise from his beloved by defeating the wicked. Now, we just started really talking about this, but I think it bears a little more attention. In verse 5, your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. He's reminding them, you just wait and see what I do. You just keep your eyes looking at the wicked. Watch what I'm doing with the wicked because you're going to see them fall. And all the challenges that you have about my love will evaporate away and it'll turn to praise. But you know the good news is we don't have to wait for that to finally happen before we can turn to praise to God. Isn't that what Peter said in his his letter? We're called to declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into the marvelous light. We get to praise God now. The problem is, as long as we're staring at the mountain that is in our way, which we really shouldn't be looking at at all, our eyes are not on the love of God. And if our eyes are not on the love of God, we're not turning that to praise and worship to him. We're too busy moaning and complaining about those difficulties in our life. How can we give God glory and praise if we're too busy moaning about the things that we're going through? Now, I don't take away from the fact that what we go through can be very difficult. I mean, even David in the Psalms said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of evil, I'm sorry, the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why did he say that? Because it's dark in the shadow of It's scary. It's frightening. I may not always be consciously, visibly seeing the Lord at work around me. But he remembers, I will not fear evil. Why? Because he was confident, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That rod and staff that's used to poke and prod, get us on the right path a little bit, give us a knock upside the head occasionally when we need it, that's a comfort to us. Because though the situation around us, the difficulties that we walk through may seem so dark and God may seem so absent, I can rest confidently knowing that God loves me. How? Because he made a choice in me. Praise God for that. It's not on me. If it were on me, I would have lost it a long time ago. He made a choice in me. He's defeating my enemies. He's making me more like Jesus. He's defeating my sinfulness. I know that he's with me. I see this happening, and it turns to praise to God. We have to look at God. We have to look at the gospel. We do it through this. We encourage each other together with this when we go through the difficult times and difficult circumstances because so easy it is. For our minds to turn from the love of God to the problems of this earth. And yes, we will experience pain. Like I said, Jesus promised trouble in this life. We live in a world that still operates under the, the dictates of sin. The sin in nature is all around us. We will experience that. But I am confident that the love of God is on me. What did Jesus say about the church? The gates of hell would not prevail against the church. The church would be preserved. You know, this is why biblical history is so important. Go through the Bible, you read it, and you see this this golden thread of God's redemption running all the way through it, right from the very beginning all the way to the end when it consummates and the final glorification of Jesus Christ and destruction of sin and all the enemies of God. You see it woven all through the lives of real people living real lives, having real struggles, living their life, trying to serve the Lord. You see God bringing his plans to fruition. Like Pastor Scott is fond of saying, everything prior to the cross is flowing to the cross. And in the New Testament, everything is flowing out of the cross. And you know your biblical history, you can see it. You can see what God did in Genesis 3 and the promise that he made to Adam and Eve. You can see him starting to make it a little bit bigger. Because, you know, in the beginning, it was just this tiny little thing, the seed of the woman's coming, and crush the head of the serpent. Didn't say Jesus, didn't say Nazareth, didn't say any of that stuff, didn't say cross, didn't say that, just gave him enough. Then you get to Abraham, makes it a little bit bigger through you, all the families of the earth would be blessed. You get to to David, who said, the Messiah is coming, it's going to be like you in a way where you're going to have this, you're going to have the throne forever. You go all the way through the prophets, slowly unpacking what God is planning when it comes to redemption. So you get to the cross, and Jesus makes it reality. And now we live on the opposite side of that cross now in victory because we know that God loves us. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We see that biblical history that gives us confidence in our lives. Church history is important too. Church has a very vibrant history. Not always good though. You see how God has preserved his church through impossible situations. When it seems like the gospel is all but snuffed out, we get these snippets of people that are holding fast to the truth of the gospel. And God brings reformation into the world, explodes the world with the scriptures, and brings people to salvation. We should look at that and say, praise God what you said is true. You love the church. You made me a part of the church. Therefore, I will be preserved to the end. And I see it, and I'm called to praise. That's what... He tells them to do. The Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. That's an interesting point. You know what that foreshadows, right? The Gentiles coming to the faith. This most of us, you and I. The Gentiles coming to the faith. It was always part of the plan of God God's at work outside of the border of Israel as well as inside it was their job in the border of Israel to demonstrate God to the rest of the world all of the things that they had to do the way the priests would wear their clothes and the way they would do things their rituals and stuff all of it was pointing toward Messiah Jesus Christ to teach the world something about the holiness of God and the loving kindness of God but also the judgment of God but it was to teach them that. And so, but, but you know, in the 400 years, especially in between the Old and New Testaments, they became kind of ingrown. It was just about them. It's about my genetic ancestry as a Jewish person, they would say. And Jesus is like, this is going beyond you. And you start seeing that. That's what we read in Romans 9, where Paul is like, I'm seeing so many Gentiles coming to the faith. The Lord is all about being praised. All over the earth. This is why our church is so big and so driven by evangelism and missions. We want to see God magnified beyond the borders of Israel. But this is what we do, though, when we're focused on the love of God. I mean, that's the whole thing, isn't it? This is the lens that God intended them to view the remainder of the book. Because it's hard. There's a lot of rebuking that needed to happen. There's some things that were going on in, in Malachi's day that are kind of eye-opening. But he said, now, I'm going to give you this burden, this word, but I want you to see it through the lens of, I love you. I'm calling you to repentance. All of the things that I have promised I would do in Malachi haven't happened yet. I'm giving you yet another chance to repent before the Lord. Is that what we're doing? Do we have that opportunity to repent before the Lord? Do we see the need for us to live repentant before the Lord? We're going to encounter some very difficult things in the scriptures. Some things that that will convict us. We're going to walk through some difficult things that God is bringing into our lives. Are we viewing our lives through that lens of the gospel love of God in Jesus Christ? Remind yourself of that love. Remember that God has demonstrated it to you. By his sovereign choice in you. That he's preserving you. He's preserving his church. That's how you know he loves you. He's showing you that we praise him by keeping our eyes focused on him and what he's doing around us. And not the evil of the world or the things that we're going through. We do this. We'll do what we're called to do. As declare the excellencies of him who have called us out of darkness and into this marvelous light. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're here by faith in Christ, God loves you. Don't use the things of this world. Don't use the circumstances of this world. Don't use material things of this world as the measure of whether God loves you or not. That's a trap. And That's why charismatic theology is so difficult. So so uh, wrong and so harsh and it's hard on 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 the Christian's life because everything is put in material things. Here in this passage, God is saying, get your eyes off of those things and onto me. And then when God comes up and says, in the scripture, when you read it, God says to you, I have loved you. Instead of coming back and saying, how? We come back and say, amen, praise the Lord, thank you for Jesus Christ, I know you love me. I may not love the things that I'm going through. But I know you love me. I put my hope in you. I look for those little victories in my life. And I look for that final victory when Christ comes back. And he defeats all our enemies. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the time that you've given us in the word this morning. I'm thankful, Lord, for gospel hope. Without it, we could never be confident of your love. In fact, you, that's how you love, is through the gospel. I pray for the folks that are here today that, that um, may not be in the faith. I pray, Lord, that they would call upon you and be saved. I pray for those that are here that are in the faith and they go about in this world, that you would make their paths straight this week. That you would make them more like Jesus Christ. That you would help them to focus on your love for them. And not in the circumstances around them. Help them keep their eyes on Christ. It's hard. We need that help. Prompt us, Holy Spirit, when we deviate from that. When our eyes go from the things above to the things of this earth. And we thank you because the only reason why we can do this is because what you have done to us through faith in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.